Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Hello and welcome back. I'm Dan on staff at Upper House and your host of the Upwards podcast. You might have noticed that our release schedule is a little lighter in July. That's intentional. We're preparing for the fall and a full slate of conversations, weekly episodes that we're really excited to bring you. Even so, in July, we thought we'd highlight a few of our past events, uh, particularly around the issues of faith and science. So that's what we're doing today. We have another From the Vault episode, and this one goes all the way back to September of 2018. Back then, we hosted Praveen Sethupathy, a leading genomicist who gave the talk that we're about to listen to on DNA editing and its ethical implications. The talk is fascinating. It's both an explainer of what gene editing is and the promises and potential pitfalls of CRISPR-Cas9 technology, and Praveen gets into what exactly that technology is. Most of us have probably at least heard of it. Uh, That technology that allows scientists to modify genomes of living organisms. Though this talk was a few years ago, there's been developments, of course, in the CRISPR world. Like most of the scientific community, CRISPR scientists in early 2020 shifted their focus to COVID-19, with genomicists helping lead the effort for rapid and accurate testing. And there's also been a pretty frequent stream of CRISPR and gene editing chatter in our culture, from the story of illegal baby gene editing out of China, which was actually in late 2018, uh, to the popular history of gene editing by Walter Isaacson, titled Codebreaker, which came out earlier this year. With all this said, we're really excited to resurface this talk, which remains pertinent and is also just an exemplar of a Christian and a scientist thinking through very complex issues in our world today. Uh, Just another note that this is an in-person talk that happened here at Upper House in 2018. And so there are a couple references that Praveen makes to things in the room or actually to how he's holding his hand at one point. Uh, And there are a few interactions with the audience as well. In fact, the talk starts with him asking a few questions of the audience. But none of it should inhibit your ability to sort of understand or track what's going on. And it's also a bit charming to get that uh, live experience uh, as we're listening to it now a few years later. And a little about Praveen. Praveen Sethupathy is a professor at Cornell University in the Department of Biomedical Sciences. He directs the Center for Vertebrate Genomics. He worked at the National Human Genome Research Institute before becoming a professor with Dr. Francis Collins, who you probably recognize from being in the news frequently in the last year as the director of the National Institutes of Health. Praveen has also published dozens of peer-reviewed articles and is a widely consulted expert on genomics. He's also a Christian uh, who has spoken frequently on the integration of faith and science at Upper House and many, many other places. So um, as you saw the title, this is about genome editing. How many people have heard 
about genome editing? I'm assuming it's going to be most, if not all of you. Okay. And then how many people have heard of CRISPR-Cas9? Okay, great. So almost all of the people that raised their hands for genome editing had heard about CRISPR-Cas9. How many of you would feel comfortable explaining to one of your colleagues or peers or friends what CRISPR-Cas9 is? There you go. The one person, yeah, in the room who has more expertise than I do on this topic and maybe another person over there. Okay, great. So I'm glad to see that. Um, but this is what I, you know, the kind of feedback I usually get when I ask this question is everybody's heard about it. Um, we have some kind of an understanding about what it is, um, but we wouldn't feel comfortable articulating it. And maybe that makes us feel even more uncomfortable about how we feel about it and what it even means to us, right? And so whether it's NPR or whatever your news source is where you're hearing about this kind of in your day-to-day uh, -day life, um, I'm betting that most of you would benefit or would appreciate a basic understanding of CRISPR-Cas9 before we even get into what this talk is billed as, which is discussing ethical implications of this. And I find that that's really important, whether we're talking about evolution or stem cells or genome editing. Um, so much of the uh, consternation uh, that some communities feel come from the fact that they're not even well-defined terms. People are using them in different ways, meaning different things, and therefore speaking past each other. So I'd like to avoid that in as much as is possible today and start with a brief uh, description of it and a brief history of it so that you appreciate kind of where we find ourselves today. And then we can get into the meat of it, okay? So CRISPR stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. Okay, that's what CRISPR stands for. Whenever I speak on this, I always make sure it's in front of me. Okay, ever since uh, Craig Mello, a Nobel laureate, was giving uh, an interview uh, for NPR and live was asked, can you tell us what CRISPR stands for, by the way? And he couldn't come up with it which is not to malign uh, uh, Craig, because I can't either. I often forget, wait, interspaced, regular, regular. So don't feel bad if even walking out of here today, you don't remember exactly what it is. But it is clustered, regularly, interspaced, short, palindromic repeats. Okay. What does this mean? Okay. Let's take a step back and talk about DNA. Right? DNA present in almost every cell of our body and it's made up of these uh, chemical bases, A, C, T, and G, right? And we have stretches of this from one to three billion in every cell of our body that has DNA, right? And in different stretches, you can have what are known as repetitive DNA sequences. So imagine a pattern like A, C, G, G, T, okay? And then imagine you know, replicating that pattern over and over again. So you have ACGGT, ACGGT, ACGGT in this kind of clustered sequential fashion, okay? That would be often be called by geneticists or genomicists as repetitive sequence. And there's a lot of repetitive sequence in DNA. That in and of itself is a field. You can start up a lab and study for the next five, six decades about different kinds of repetitive sequences in the genome and what they mean. And frankly, it all started when, you know, we uh, uh, were sequencing the human genome and realizing that these repetitive sequences were far more frequent than we had even previously anticipated, even though we did know that they exist. And people are still studying many different kinds of repetitive sequence. It's not just one pattern that's repeated. 
but it's different kinds of patterns. Maybe it's G-A-G-G-G-A-G, and then that gets repeated over and over again. The fact that it's repeated that way is some sort of a clue that perhaps the clustering of the same kind of pattern means something important, is doing something functionally important. That's the basic idea. Okay. But these repeat sequences, the CRISPRs, were first found in bacteria. So it was actually 1987, um, and it was a lab in Osaka University, where they first identified these repeat sequences in a bacterial genome. So not in the human genome or mouse or fruit fly or anything like that, but it was in bacteria. And I always really like to point that out because sometimes people ask, why study bacteria? Outside of the context of bacteria infecting us, who cares? (laughs) There's so many fundamental discoveries that have affected human biology and human disease that we now take for granted that come from studying things like fungi and bacteria. CRISPR-Cas9 being one of the most recent and popularly known. Okay. But these are repeat sequences that are found in, uh, at that time, was one bacterial genome. We now appreciate that they're found in many, many bacterial genomes and archaea and other kinds of uh, species as well. But after it was found in 1987, it was found again in some other bacterial genomes in 1993 by labs in Netherlands and Spain. So things were starting to pick up. It wasn't just some weird anomaly that was being found in one bacteria. More and more people were finding these repeat sequences in other bacteria, right? And so there was a growing interest in what these repeat sequences were doing. It's one thing to find something in the genome that you didn't know about before. It's quite another to try to figure out what they're actually doing, okay? So what does it mean to say that they're interspaced repeats? It occurs to me here that a quick slide might have been helpful, but hang with me because I'll I'll try to describe for you how it's arranged, okay? So imagine my fist as one of those repeat sequences, okay? The next repeat sequence among the cluster is not found immediately adjacent to it. It's found right about here. It's interspaced, right? And then the next one isn't right here. It's right about there. And it's roughly equally spaced in the cluster that you find it in the genome. So what's the stuff in between? right? The stuff in between is also DNA, okay? It's in the bacterial genome, but it's not the repetitive sequence. It's something else altogether. It turns out there's information encoded in that stuff in between that allows the bacteria to be able to fight against foreign invaders. And I need to explain this for a second, because usually we think of bacteria as our foreign invaders, right? And they are, But bacteria themselves have foreign invaders, and they're called bacteriophages. And they are essentially viruses that infect bacteria. So we're very familiar with viruses that infect us, but there are different kinds of viruses that specifically infect bacteria. And it's this dynamic between bacteriophages and bacteria that prevent one or the other from taking over the world. Okay? Because if we didn't have bacteriophages, we'd have way more bacteria than we knew what to do with, right? Be hard to even imagine us existing, right? So that interplay uh, and dynamic is extremely crucial. But you can imagine that the bacteria have developed ways in which to fight against these bacteriophages that infect bacteria, okay? A quick aside here, does anybody 
you know, we, we use the word bacteria and bacteriophages, particularly in the scientific community, a lot. But does anybody know where those words come from, what they actually mean? Aside from Jeff, <laughs> probably some others here as well. But bacteria, okay, comes from a Greek word, bactron. Okay, and bactron is actually a staff, right? It's like a staff or a stick. And bacterion is like a little staff or a little stick, right? And the reason why bacteria were named that way is that the, the, the first ones that were discovered were kind of rod-shaped, like a rod or a staff, right? And so when scientists noticed that, they gave it the name bacterion, right? Uh, and then bacterium in Latin and then bacteria today, okay? Um, and, and a phage is essentially, uh, again, from Greek, but it means to, to devour, right? To like, engulf and destroy, right? So a bacteriophage is essentially something that can infect and devour a bacteria, right? And so that sounds pretty nasty. And so you can imagine that the bacteria want to mount some kind of an immune response against these foreign invaders, the same way that we expect our body to when we ingest pathogens that are uh, not so healthy for us or get infected uh, and get the flu and, you know, things like that, right? Okay, so makes sense that bacteria need a way to respond to foreign invaders. It turns out it was not until around 2007. So this is, what are we, we're, you know, 20 years after the original discovery of these oddly, you know, interspaced uh, repetitive palindromic uh, repeats that were discovered, that it was finally proposed that these are probably an immune response, that the information that's encoded in between those repeat sequences um, actually helps the bacteria to identify, target, and kill, uh, and disable the bacteriophages, the viruses that are infecting that bacteria. Okay, So it turns out it's a really clever bacterial trick. Right? It's a way, it's something, a mechanism that it's evolved to fight invaders. So that's where it originally comes from. It's not the context in which you usually hear it. But again, as I said, I find it helpful to understand the history and how sort of this all came about. It wasn't really until 2013 or so, about five years ago. Feels like genome editing and CRISPR-Cas9 has been around forever, right? But it really wasn't until 2013 that that mechanism of bacteria, scientists began to realize we could leverage that. We can take bits and pieces of that and use it for the purpose of genome editing, right? The idea was nature has already come up with a way to fight foreign invaders and disable invading DNA. What if we used some of that same machinery to make changes in human DNA, right? In cells in a dish, for example, right? And so that was done in 2013. We were starting to use this technology to edit the DNA of cells that were being grown in a dish, which is a very, very common occurrence in most molecular biology and cell biology labs in the country. Okay. And it's now five years later, and it feels as though it's been around for several decades because almost every major molecular or cell biology lab that has funding is either doing CRISPR in some way or thinking about doing CRISPR or collaborating with someone doing CRISPR, right? And so even though it took 20 years to figure out what these were even doing, uh, in bacteria, we have now very rapidly grown from that point to be able to leverage that machinery for things that it was not originally intended for, 
right? But as a tool in research, okay? So I hope that that uh, background is a little bit, it's helpful for you now and in future uh, discussions when you hear about CRISPR-Cas9 and, and genome editing. It wasn't something that was discovered from scratch. It wasn't machinery that was, you know, uh, generated and assembled from square one. It, we were actually leveraging something that was already happening in bacteria. Okay. Okay, so with some of that background out of the way, why is there so much buzz about CRISPR-Cas9? What is it, what are we using it for now? And why is there so much excitement and buzz about it? Why is it always on NPR, for example? Basically, as I've already alluded to, it's a method for genetic engineering, right? And this is sort of a broad term that's used to describe a process by which you alter the genetic code of an organism, right? So you can think about genetic engineering in plants. You can think about genetic engineering in mice and fruit fly and model organisms like that in the laboratory setting. And you can think about it with humans, right? And we're going to get to that. But there are all sorts of different kinds of contexts in which genetic engineering comes to play. And this is a method for genetic engineering. But that's not new. Genetic engineering has been happening for decades, right? What makes this exciting is not that it makes genetic engineering possible. It's that it makes it much, much more accurate than ever before and much easier to use and much more rapid to execute and much more cheap fashion, right? It's like a democratization of genetic engineering, right? You know, in the past, the tools and the resources and the technologies for genetic engineering might only have been available to a smaller set of laboratories that were really focused on that kind of work. Um, and perhaps it was not as accurate and maybe not as cheap. And for various reasons, this particular technology is a lot more accurate, a lot cheaper, a lot faster to do, which is why it's easier for everybody to adopt, right? Well-funded labs, not so well-funded labs, people with expertise in molecular genetics, not so much expertise in molecular genetics, can still, you know, get the reagents, the, the tools that are necessary to pull this off in their context of interest in their lab. That has really what has been made this really exciting, is it's just spread like wildfire in a way that previous technologies, due to various limitations, were not able to, right? So now it's on everyone's lips, right? And that's making it more of a reality when we talk about things like, oh my gosh, is this going to come into the human realm? And if so, what are the ethical considerations? Now that's getting hyped up as a, a point of conversation more than with all of the other previous technologies. So that's the thing to understand it about, about it too, right? It's not necessarily the first method for genetic engineering. So as a research tool, we are leveraging CRISPR-Cas9 in my laboratory, okay? And we're using it in some very, very exciting ways. And so I'll give you one example, just as a quick story. One of the diseases that we study in my laboratory is called fibrolamellar carcinoma. It is a very rare, very devastating form of liver cancer. Until recently, it was not even often properly diagnosed by clinicians. Um, who would see a mass on the liver and think that it was a typical liver cancer, but it turns out that in some cases it's actually this rare form which doesn't respond to any of the drugs that have been developed for people with a typical liver cancer. And the nefarious thing about this disease is that it affects little kids to young adults, 
and uh, the survival rate is not high. And because we have no treatment option right now, uh, these children and young adults essentially die five or six years later on average. There are some amazing, most miraculous success stories uh, with variety of drugs that have been attempted, but by and large, people die. Um, and it's really devastating. I've met with these communities and their parents who you have these happy, healthy kids, and then suddenly, you know, they have tummy aches for some years, and it's not clear exactly what's happening. And then before they even think to see an oncologist, this cancer has spread throughout the body. So it's, it's a slow-growing cancer that doesn't tell you it's there for a long time. And then before you know it, it spreads like that. Right? These are these two features of cancers, how fast they grow and how fast they spread. And this, this particular one spread, grows slowly but spreads quickly once it gets to a certain uh, maturity. Um, so it's really devastating, and we've been working hard for the past uh, four or five years since we learned about it um, to try to come up with a cure uh, for these patients and for these families. And um, for various reasons that I won't get into, it turns out to be a disease that really lends itself well, potentially, to CRISPR-Cas9-based treatment. Right? right now, we're not doing anything with human patients or anything like that, but it's a single mutation that causes this cancer in these patients. And it, that's an important point because a lot of cancer is not that way. It's an accumulation of many mutations, right? And so you have colon cancer and you go to your doctor, he or she might tell you, you know, it's because you've got these seven or eight or 10 or 12 mutations that in accumulation are increasing your risk for the development of colon cancer because of the way you eat, right? It's a very... It's usually very complicated interaction between your lifestyle and your diet and your genetics, many mutations potentially contributing. But here's a cancer where it's one mutation. And if we could fix that, if we could repair that one mutation in just the small collection of cells that originally have it in these patients, we might be able to reverse course, right? And so when we say exciting possibilities, Right? I'm getting goosebumps talking about it because I'm flooded with the thoughts of these patients in my mind. Right? And we have this amazing opportunity to give these people a life that they're not going to have otherwise. Right? right now, our efforts are limited to cells. So we have cells in the lab that uh, are able to mimic how this cancer behaves. Right? So even the discovery of that was really big for this field. But now that we have that, we, we call it in the field a model, right? So it's a model of how this cancer behaves inside of a person. And we have that growing in Petri dishes now, right? And now we're able to test our ability to be able to use this CRISPR-Cas9 technology leveraged from bacteria to see if we might be able to change that, reverse that mutation in these cells that are harboring that mutation and see if we can stop it from behaving like a cancer. That's what we're doing right now. And we have, we've got a long way to go, um, but there are promising uh, preliminary results. Right? So I'm hoping that in the years to come, we'll be, I'll be able to tell you even more um, about this and have success stories to share. That would be my dream. Right now, we're in early stages where we're just trying to figure out whether we can even do it. Uh, but we've never before been as excited as this because we have the technology to do it, and it's not going to cost an arm and a leg as it might have before. So 
that kind of thing is being done not only with cancer, but other kinds of diseases. But for the most part, in most labs across the country, it's happening in cells, or it's happening in fruit flies, or zebrafish, or mice, the, 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 the kinds of species that are generally used in laboratory settings in order to try and rectify human diseases or understand why they come about. The use of these organisms is not new. That's been going on for a long time. And the, the use of these organisms to screen different kinds of drugs for human diseases is not new. All that's new here is that this CRISPR-Cas9 technology is now being tried out on these different models. And so that's rampant. It's going on all across the country and the world. And generally speaking, um, there are uh, you know, no really... Um, uh, robust ethical concerns to those. I mean, to, to everything we do, there might be some ethical concern, but those aren't the ones that I think gain the most traction when we talk about ethical concerns with CRISPR-Cas9, right? Though that, that's leveraging a technology, studying it in model organisms in the hope that we might better understand our biology and rectify our diseases, okay? So that's happening a lot, okay? Where it starts to get sticky is in thinking about CRISPR-Cas9 as a therapeutic intervention. Okay, that's, that's the first layer of stickiness. It's not the most layer. It's like the first layer of stickiness, right? Is CRISPR-Cas9 as a therapeutic intervention? As you can see, my mind is already going that direction, right? Because I'm hoping to provide uh, relief for these patients. And so you can tell if my mind is going there, many, many other people are already there. And in fact, it's already happened. So we need to stop talking about this as a future tense, as something that can happen in the next 5, 10 years. It's already happened. In 2016, China has been, uh, labs in China, I should say, um, are trying to leverage CRISPR-Cas9 in humans to rectify cancer. So metastatic lung cancer, for example, or other kinds of cancers. But that was the first one that was attempted. Um, and a clinical trial has now been uh, approved in the U.S., uh, led uh, by the University of Pennsylvania, where I did my graduate studies, and a few other institutions, I think, are involved as well. Okay, so this is happening right now, where we're, we're, they're, they're trying to see if this could be useful um, for patients that are suffering with certain kinds of cancers. Okay, um, Cancer has been the primary focus right now, um, but... Uh, you, the, the application of this, should these clinical trials be successful to other kinds of diseases for which we know specific mutations to cause the disease, is just on the horizon. And in fact, they, they may already be happening, and I'm not even aware of it. Right? Um, so this is ongoing right now. What are the concerns? What are the concerns that are associated with trying to do this in humans? When we talk about doing this in humans, there are two different ways, broadly speaking, in which it might be applied to humans. One we would call is rectifying somatic mutations. The other is rectifying germline mutations. And they're two different conversations. And I'll tell you what the difference is. With somatic mutations, these are not mutations that you inherited from your mother or father. Okay? These are mutations that are new in you. Right? So if you bask in UV rays too much and you get a mutation because of that exposure and then you get melanoma, 
uh, that those are somatic mutations, mutations that occurred in cells of your body that are not germline cells, sperm or egg. Okay, what that means that the reason why I draw a distinction between that and germline is because you don't pass those on, right? Unless the mutations occur in your sperm or egg or what's called germline. Okay, if they're somatic mutations, you're not passing them on, so they're unique to you. Okay, they're they're just as ravaging and devastating and can cause horrible things like cancer. But the difference is that you don't pass them those types of mutations along. Okay. If you catch certain kinds of cancers early enough, it's just a small collection of cells that have this maybe one or two mutations that trigger what's called a transformation or the development of the cancer. What if you could catch it at that stage? and use CRISPR-Cas9 to reverse those mutations, to edit them back, right? Now you no longer have this small cluster of cells that is going to wreak havoc in your body, right? So coupled with the ability to detect it early, we may be able to leverage CRISPR-Cas9 to reverse course for these patients, or maybe they'll never develop the tumor at all, okay? That's the hope that for example, this University of Pennsylvania-led trial has. Can we use CRISPR-Cas9 to do this? It's still a question. We don't have really good data on this yet, right? We've been doing it mostly as proof of principle in other kinds of settings, right? Now it, they're moving it to clinical trials. And the question here becomes, with these somatic mutations, are we comfortable with that? Is there any problem? Should we have any ethical consideration with trying to rectify these mutations in these patients? Okay. There are some concerns to go over. Some are scientific. Some are more ethically oriented. The scientific ones, is it even ready for prime time? You know, we talk about these things as though it's a panacea, but the reality is there are problems. There are what are called off-target effects. So you can design custom design that machinery to target the mutation you want, but every once in a while, it'll go somewhere else, right? And then if it goes to that somewhere else and introduces a new mutation, well, you've just corrected one problem and potentially introduced another. Are we okay with this, right? Well, um, my answer to this depends largely on how good we are at this moment at mitigating those effects. And I'm telling you, we're getting better and better with every passing month and year. We're, no, we're, not, we're not perfect. And anybody that suggests that isn't uh, you know, being faithful to where we are. But we are definitely getting better and better. And it's the best that we've ever had for this kind of technology. And the other thing I would say is, this is largely true for most other medications. And there's a difference in that we're changing the DNA and other medications generally are not. But when we take a pill for our cancer or our diabetes or our schizophrenia or whatever it might be, right, we are familiar, very familiar with the litany of potential off-target effects on all of these medications, right? So I am not necessarily saying it's the same thing, but it is helpful to put it into the context of what we're already doing and generally comfortable with. The clincher on this is that at the moment, it's being proposed primarily for patients who have no other recourse and are likely to die very soon, right? There are different names given to this. One that I'm familiar with in the circles that I'm in is a mercy protocol. This is a, 
a protocol that the FDA will approve quickly for a patient that doesn't have very long based on clinical expertise, but you have some drugs that you might want to try just in case it works, but it hasn't really been proven yet. And if the patient uh, you know, accepts it, it can be done. So again, these kinds of things are already happening, right? So it seems to me that's, in my opinion, the least controversial or problematic, right? Yes, there are some issues to work through here, but they seem like workable issues. And I think by and large, um, you know, the desire to alleviate the suffering of these patients is going to overwhelm whatever other kind of subtle problem we might have with these, okay? Now let's get to the second track of the kinds of mutations we might want to rectify. These are germline mutations, right? So not the mutations that are occurring in other parts of our body over the course of our lives, but in our sperm or our egg, right? Suggesting that changes made there are heritable. We're going to pass them on to the next generation. And here's where things start to get a little bit uh, fuzzier, right? In terms of the ethics, right? Um, are we comfortable with the longer term changes, right? Um, there may very well be some complicated kind of long-term changes of taking medications that we take today, okay? So still, you still have that analogy, but it starts to break down a little bit because you're making a very definitive change in the DNA that is then going to be inherited, uh, in an inherited by the next generation. Right? What could be the potential problem of that? Well, you might be convinced in this patient with the rest of his or her DNA, making this change is okay. But what if that change is made in the context of someone else's DNA? Could it have a worse impact? Could there be some unintended negative impact, right? It's just difficult to map out what the consequences are of spreading this in the human population, right? Of course, mutations like that occur naturally all the time. So it's not like we don't, that doesn't happen. The difference here is we're introducing it, and the question becomes, are we comfortable doing that, right? That, too, has already been done. So in 2017, at Oregon Health Sciences University, for a disease called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, right? And we don't need to get into the details of this except to say that it's very devastating. It can cause uh, um, sudden heart failure and death, instant death. Uh, is a very viable outcome for people that have uh, the mutation that causes this disease, right? So it's, it's heartbreaking, um, and it's unfortunately not as rare as I would like to see it be, okay? So that's already happened. The, you know, the early stage zygote, so this is a fertilized egg, right, um, can be uh, um, altered at the genetic level using CRISPR-Cas9 technology to revert this mutation back to the protective, the protective version, right? So get it out of the risk version and get it back into the protective version. So Oregon Health Sciences University received a lot of press uh, about a year ago for uh, accomplishing this and publishing it um, in a scientific journal. So the, the, the concern here is, are we starting to play God, right? Are we playing God is a question that is often levied against uh, scientists that are involved in this kind of work, okay? And I, I, there are a couple ways in which I want us to kind of think about this, right? The first is, I want you to be aware that this question of are we playing God has been asked throughout history 
with every new wave of technological advancement. And it's important to understand the context. That doesn't mean, don't get from this that I'm saying there's no new question to be asked in this particular technology, but it is useful to put it into that historical context, right? In fact, you know, in, in terms of Christian history, right, there have been times where with the development of uh, and more widespread use of medicine that Christian communities have rejected that in favor of God just healing us, right? Or, um, you know, if, if, if uh, suffering comes about, then it must be uh, for our advancement, like Job, right? Or if, uh, you know, God wants me to die, then, um, then perhaps that's the best course instead of me trying to resist what he's doing in my life. These are not fringe. They, they may today be fringe statements, but at various times in history, they were not fringe. Right? They were endorsed by the power structures uh, in, in the organized uh, uh, re- religion and were practiced by many people um, who were uh, Christians, Catholics, uh, related faith traditions. Um, so you know, there, there's a prominent example. Saint uh, Gorgina is, I think, her name's a Greek, Greek Orthodox uh, saint, and I think she's the patron saint for people with illnesses uh, in, in that tradition. Um, and the story goes, I think she was about 4th century, and the story goes that she was trampled by mules and had crushed bones and, in, and crushed internal organs. And because it was indecent to receive medical treatment, um, you know, she is said to have not received any treatment and simply prayed for miraculous healing, which, as the story goes, was provided for her. And she was elevated as a saint uh, in that community, right? Because the notion of resisting external uh, influences to our body and accepting whatever it is that God is doing was a dominant feeling. That was what was thought was uh, orthodox and proper and decent and right thing for a Christian to do in that community, right? Um, so you know, and we don't have to even go that far back. I mean, even 17th, 18th century, there are resistance movements within Christianity um, uh, that, that say, you know what, if God is bringing suffering, then, you know, perhaps I'm supposed to be going through this, you know, uh, that uh, we, we shouldn't be looking for natural means by which to ameliorate this, because maybe I am then foregoing some sort of spiritual growth, right? Um, again, not particularly fringe. I also don't want to give the impression that every Christian believed this. That's also not the case, okay? But these kinds of ideas are much more prevalent than we are used to thinking about today, what happened over time? We find ourselves today saying, if you've got a headache, it might be a good idea to help you out and take something. If you've got bipolar disease or, you know, OCD, it'd be helpful for you to take some medication and give yourself a little bit of buffer space to work through that. You know, if you've got diabetes, you name it, right? We're generally in the Christian community not uh, uh, opposed to the notion of taking medications to help ourselves out. And in fact, the conversation has shifted to another kind of ethic where we say, no, we have to alleviate suffering. We have to ameliorate pain. This has to be a part of what we do as believers, as Christians, you know, being the hands and feet of Christ to a broken world. We need to, this is a part of that. We have medical missions now, right? That's a 180, right? So it's useful to think about that, right? And say, okay, is all of our hype up about the concern about this um, you know, is there part of it at least that I might be able to kind of calm down about, right? Is it just the next iteration of medications and drugs? Or the next iteration of 
oh, advanced surgeries, you know, the ways in which we've responded to them in the past. So I think that's useful to think about as you are working through how you feel about this, okay? But on the other side, there are a couple of things to think about, okay? The first is, in order for us to get to the point where we feel that we have leveraged the technology well enough to be able to put it into clinical trials or use in humans, it requires a lot of research work. A lot of that research work, in order to be as relevant for humans as possible, has to happen in human embryos. Right? And a lot of the times we'll get it wrong as we try to make it more perfect. Right? What happens to all of those human embryos that are utilized in the research process? Generally speaking, there isn't a problem that most researchers feel that are engaged in this topic in just destroying those. Right? So now we've just introduced the other side of the coin. Say, so, well, wait a minute. We've been talking a lot about alleviating suffering, and I'm on board, right? But now we're alleviating suffering at the expense of what many of us might say is another human life, or at least a life with potential, right? So then how do we feel about that, right? Earlier this morning, we were sort of half-joking when we said that you need a tension between science and faith. It's one... There's harmony, but think of what harmony actually is. It's not the same notes, right? It's, there's a little bit of a tension there, right? But it's a tension that works well together, right? And it's the same thing between science and faith. We can't go so overboard with our desire to want to heal that we, are, you know, we have no ethical foundation, right? And the example I gave was, you know, you may have a failing kidney and I really, really want to help you, but I, I can't just rip it out of him to give it to you, right? Then, then what have I done here? I've really lost all ethical bases, and I'm not really moored in anything, you know? Um, and so that's where we come to with this question. It's, yes, we want to alleviate suffering, but it seems like to get there, we may need to make some compromises with things that traditionally we have been very uncomfortable with, right? So that's a line that, you know, I'm not sure how to, how to navigate that, right? Um, and uh, instinctively, because of the caution and the slowness that I think we need to apply to any kind of new progress. And that's maybe the, the most important word for today, by the way, right? That's, it's not about stopping something or not doing something, but it's about applying caution. We live in this age where we, want, we thought of an idea, we want it to happen yesterday, you know? And I think we need to slow things down and give ourselves the room to think about it, right? But as I slow my thoughts down on CRISPR-Cas9, this is one big area that gives me room for pause. Am I comfortable with this in order to achieve that? And I'm not sure yet, right? And I respect a lot of Christian voices on both sides of uh, the answers to that question. I've heard yeses and nos, but they basically boil down to how they weigh these things, right? Whether they believe this matters more than this. And I think that that's is very difficult, but a starting point has to be what is your motivation, right? What is your motivation for doing? Why do you want to do this? And I'm not saying that that is going to in and of itself solve the problem, but it will at least get us talking about the right thing. Is this motivation really what we ought to be focused on in the Christian body? The more salient concerns that you've heard about, not that that isn't important, but it's a well-defined question the kind of universe of other kinds of scarier possibilities are things that you may have heard about in the kind of general 
public conversation of this, like the use of CRISPR-Cas9 for designer babies and the use of CRISPR-Cas9 for biological warfare. Right? These are all contexts that make this technology very scary. Right? So designer babies being the idea of personalized enhancement. Right? You want a kid who's blonde and blue-eyed, and let's make it happen with CRISPR-Cas9. Right? Um, you know, you, you, you get the, this technology gets into the wrong hands. Maybe it can be used, uh, you, you know, in, for nefarious purposes, right? In the, in the same way that, you know, other kinds of biological weapons are, right? Like viruses and things like that, right? Those are very, very, very important concerns because if we go too fast, right, we will not, even if we decide we want to move forward and do this, if we don't do it cautiously and slowly, we will not have put in accountability structures, regulations, things like that in order to severely mitigate or minimize the probability of these kinds of horrible things. Right? And again, we've done that kind of thing before. Right? If you're going to work with Ebola, you got to jump through so many hoops to get to the point where you're going to do that. Right? And the purpose of that is, is to restrict access to things that could otherwise in the wrong hands wreak havoc in our communities, right? So you could, in principle, imagine doing things like that with CRISPR-Cas9, should it be something we move forward with. But I firmly believe that if we don't take it slow and walk through each of these things, no matter how obvious it may seem to others, we won't actually put in place the best structures of accountability and regulation. So that's one reason in and of itself to take it very slow. And I'm heartened to hear, it's not just Christians talking about this, many non-Christian scientists are coming to the table in a way that I haven't seen before with other kinds of technologies that elicited these conversations and saying, whoa, let's, I'm not saying let's not do it, I'm excited about this, but let's talk about this. Let's bring the key players together and talk through this. And so if there is a silver lining or a ray of hope, it's that you know, many of my colleagues and many leading scientists in this area, not all, but many leading scientists agree with the importance of taking things slow. Right? Um, but we can't just dismiss things like designer babies, personalized enhancement as, oh, okay, is that really a, a big concern? There are already people talking about these kinds of things, right? And while it may not be happening right now, or while we may still need more development for people who want to apply it in those kinds of ways, provided there isn't regulation, and it's not just America, right, guys? I mean, we can have regulation, but there are countries in the world that are plowing forward much faster than we are, I think ultimately to the detriment of this field and its correct application of the technology, right? So there's a, a world wide enterprise to think about not just what we should be doing as a country. And so we need to be engaging with other countries and drawing them into this discussion rather than alienating these countries and then making it difficult for us to have, you know, joint efforts, international efforts about how we pursue these things, right? And I'm not a Pollyanna. I'm not suggesting it's all going to be easy if we just play nice and, you know, hold hands and sing Kumbaya. But, um, but we do need to take this effort because it's very serious. This is stuff that's on the horizon, right? And we have to remember when we think about Nazis, when we think about eugenics movements, this wasn't unique to Nazis in Germany. This, there was a robust American eugenics movement, right? 
There were times, even apart from eugenics movement in our country, led by scientists, right? Um, there were times in our country where, uh, you know, cells were taken from, from, from people without their, uh, um, uh, um, yeah, consent. Sorry, consent, yes. Um, and, and, and many other examples like that where we have forayed into realms that are clearly unethical and inappropriate and strip people of their dignity, right? Um, and that should concern us to the core of our being, right? Because we are not immune to this. It would be erroneous to think that we already have everything in place to prevent this. We don't. And, and that's why this conversation is extremely important because we have already revealed that brokenness and that wretchedness and that sinfulness in us, that tendency to take this in directions that clearly uh, um, strip people of their dignity. And with every single person being made in the image of God, being an image bearer of God, that should seriously offend us as Christians, right? We cannot even, we can't take that lightly, right? Um, And so we need to be at the forefront of providing this voice. And if others are joining us in this voice, fantastic. But we need to be there making this voice heard irrespective of who else is there because uh, this really gets to the heart of what I think is perhaps the greatest concern down the road in the application of this technology. Okay. So what, what I'll end with is something I alluded to before, um, and that is that with these kinds of questions that emerge from the scientific community, and they start to uh, uh, you know, make us question about the relative merit, whether or not we should engage it, how do we view it as Christians, I, I hope that it's an encouragement to you that um, the starting point is not, what's the technology? Because it's not usually the technology is bad or the technology is good, right? I think it was Jeff Harden in an article in a uh, uh, lecture that he gave where he pointed out the words of Billy Graham, who said, it's rarely the technology, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it's not so much the technology Christians ought to be worried about, it's the people using it, right? And my interpretation of that is, what is our motivation, right? If we can all get to come to the table and agree on a set of motivations that we believe outweigh any other concerns we might have in terms of its application, then we can lay out very, very clear lines that ought not to be crossed with clear regulation and clear uh, um, penalty, right, for crossing those lines, right? And a body that is dedicated to the application of those rules None of those really exist right now, right? And so we need to sit down and put all of that together. But I think the starting point is, why do we want to do this? You know, because we can is not a good answer. And it's surprising how often I do hear that, right? So that's why our voice here is important, the the, the Christian voice. It's not because, because we can is not a good answer to me. We need to have articulated and formulated a much more compelling reason that is consistent with our purpose as people made in the image of God. We are called to reflect and represent him in this broken world, right? And so is my motivation consistent with that? And even there, we can have honest disagreements as Christians. But again, like I said, at least we're talking about the right thing and then trying to form some, you know, some kind of a compromise there, right? So... That's what I would recommend is the starting point here, and not so much just 
you know, is our technology ready for prime time or what are the off-target effects? These are all important concepts and topics to be discussing, but look, we're headed here. So let's get ahead of this and start talking about what our motivation is. Why do we want to do what we want to do? Um, and then I think a lot of the other stuff will kind of sort itself out. And then we'll get really to the heart of the matter and discuss the, the, the toughest questions. Praveen continued for a good 30 minutes more, answering some questions from the audience, questions that dove into particular topics or angles, particularly the ethical side of the questions around CRISPR technology. I imagine if he'd given a similar talk in 2021, the questions would revolve around CRISPR's relationship to diseases and gene editing as well. In fact, for those of you listening like me with <clears throat> no medical training, in the last year, I've read more about and learned more about disease transmission and the process of scientific discovery and collaboration that leads to vaccines than really I had in all the previous years of my life. And I think a lot of us have had that experience. And so returning to a talk like this, I at least had a new appreciation for the wonder of modern technology for the amazing processes and collaboration and communities of scientists that make sort of the rapid discoveries that uh, have helped fight COVID possible. And of course, the really sticky and complicated ethical implications of these technologies. So with that, until next time, thank you for listening to the Upwards podcast and speaking for the Upper House team, go in peace. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Andy Johnson, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.